Support for this podcast comes from the Neubauer Family Foundation, supporting WHYY's fresh air and its commitment to sharing ideas and encouraging meaningful conversation. This is Fresh Air. I'm Dave Davies in for Terry Gross. In June of 2020, conservative broadcaster and Donald Trump acolyte Steve Bannon stood on a boat in New York Harbor with a wealthy Chinese businessman for an unusual live-streamed news conference. Bannon and Guo Wenhui announced the formation of an alternative government for the people of China called the New Federal State of China. The news conference ended with Guo enthusiastically chanting a slogan condemning the Chinese Communist Party and planting a kiss on Bannon's cheek. Bannon's embrace of the project was likely fueled by Guo Wenhui's generous financial backing of Bannon and Trump supporters' efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 election. Our guest, New Yorker staff writer Evan Osnos, has a new article about the curious journey of this business tycoon who fled China in 2015 after a mutually beneficial relationship with a Chinese intelligence official got him into trouble. Osnos's article examines Guo's strange career, how he made his way into Trump's inner circle, and what it says about American politics in the Trump era and our changing relationship with China. Evan Osnos has been a staff writer at The New Yorker since 2008. He spent eight years reporting in China and is the author of the book Age of Ambition, Chasing Fortune, Truth, and Faith in the New China. Osnos's new article in The New Yorker is titled How a Tycoon Linked to Chinese Intelligence Became a Darling of Trump Republicans. Evan Osnos, welcome back to Fresh Air. Thanks, Dave. Glad to be with you. Uh, This is such an odd story, uh, and it gets really interesting when this character, Guo Wenhui, gets mixed up with the Trump folks. But let's begin with his origins in China. Um, Humble background, right? Where where did he grow up? That's right. He grew up in a village called Sitaoying out in a rural stretch of Shandong province. It's a farming area, and he was one of eight children without much of anything. And he, he was born really with the gift of gab, as it's known in Chinese. He had a long, tireless tongue, but he didn't have a whole lot else. Uh, he dropped out of school at the age of 13, and he started selling things like clothes and electronics. And, and a teacher who was interviewed by Chinese reporters later remembered him as having been, as she put it, less often in class than he was out of it. She said he ran with a group that was fighting and gambling and chasing girls. And uh, before long, he ended up in jail. Right. He was jailed in 1989, um, which was the year of the Tiananmen Square massacre, I think, right? Um, is, it clear, mm-hmm. is it clear why he was jailed? Well, he tells a story that is a, a heroic narrative in which he says that he was inspired by the students at Tiananmen Square, far away in Beijing, and that he sold his motorcycle and sent them money, and that for that he was arrested. And... And But the verdict in his case doesn't mention any political activism. It, it, it describes the offenses as having been a local oil scheme, basically bilking local oil buyers out of, out of a few thousand dollars. And Agua has said that those charges have been falsified. But that really was a turning point in his life. He's, he's quite clear about that as he says that the people that he met in jail – were some of the people that launched the whole world that eventually opened up to him. Right. And I guess we should note, when we talk about what Gua says, that's not to you directly, right? He never granted you an Correct. interview, right? But, but, 
but he's left a long trail of, of, of documentation and other material, right? That's right. Yeah, he, he declined to talk to us for this article. He has made a lot of statements and videos and, uh, and, and, and legal pronouncements over the years, and, and they, uh, they tell his story as he sees it. So he gets involved in business and works uh, for a wealthy woman uh, a, a, who had a company, got involved in construction projects, and then um, gets involved in the, you know, the intersection of private entrepreneurs and government officials. Um, what, he became what's called a white glove. Explain this. Yeah, this is an interesting feature of Chinese life over the last generation. And you know, th- there is a, a realm of people in China who have built close relationships with government officials. They help them do business. It's, it's become known as being a white glove because you help the officials keep their hands clean. And what it means in effect is that you figure out ways that can help them profit or help them get an investment in a lucrative deal. All of this is done behind closed doors. And there was a a white glove named Desmond Shum who eventually fled China. And he later described his experience as having been like one of the tiny fish that cleans the teeth of a crocodile. (laughs) And it was a very risky way to live, but also very lucrative. If you got in with the right people, you could end up making a fortune. I should say, you know, it's not clear if Guo would accept or deny the characterization of a of being a white glove, but it's it's the realm of of uh, Chinese business uh, and government that was a, a, a key piece of how of how many people made their fortunes at that time. So, doing this work, I guess. You know, it involves gifts and flattery, courting of the connected. And he eventually got to Beijing where, you know, the the numbers were bigger, the stakes were bigger, the officials were more important. There's a story you tell of um, him giving a sports car to somebody. What what happened here? (laughs) Yeah, Guat denies bribing officials in the government. And it's also the case that he became – uh, gained a reputation for a form of generosity. Uh, there was a, a story, it said that a, a government regulator walked out of his house and, and found a sports car in front of it with uh, the glove box containing a gift card with hundreds of thousands of dollars on it. And there was a, a way in which others who who met Guo in this period really were struck by how visibly ostentatious he was about his wealth, which in the Chinese political culture is a signal to people that you have backing because the only way that you acquire that kind of money and the only way you can be generous is because you have people who will protect you. And so he would bring people to his house and very often treat them to these dramatic extravagant dinners and then take them down and show them a garage full of Maseratis and Lamborghinis and Ferraris. And it was it was a, the kind of lifestyle that was, in Chinese political terms, a clear sign that he had powerful people supporting him. To have Lamborghinis sounds to me like the kind of income that would go beyond being somebody's fixer. Was he was he an entrepreneur in his own right? Did he own companies? Certainly, yeah. He was building buildings in the capital. He was um, he, he was somebody who thrived within this very Chinese realm of the intersection between government power and the surging free market because the two sides needed each other after all. I mean the the, the people in government wanted to show 
in order to earn pro- their promotions in their own system, they wanted to show that that buildings were being built, that roads were going in, that railways were going in. And of course, the entrepreneurs wanted the access to coveted pieces of land. They needed permits. They needed all the kinds of things that you needed in order to build. And so there was this mutual benefit that grew up around China's go-go years in which entrepreneurs and government officials all benefited mightily. So there are stories of uh, Guo Wenguei being generous and with gifts. There were also stories of him playing rough if somebody didn't give him what he wanted, right? Yeah, very rough. In, in one particular case, which he has talked about, there was a piece of land that he needed right near the Olympic stadiums in Beijing, which was a very important, very lucrative piece of property because he wanted to build a high rise there. And there was a vice mayor of Beijing who was standing in the way of that permit named Liu Zhihua. And Guo has talked about working with government agencies to get a surveillance tape of Leo in bed with his mistress. That tape was then, he gave it to anti-corruption authorities. Leo was arrested and eventually given a suspended death sentence and Guo got his permit back. And and he's he's acknowledged that kind of dealing uh, because it was, in his mind, a rough and tumble place and, and he was going to figure out a way to thrive in it. Right. So in this world, um, you know, he would use whatever leverage he can get. And it appears that there was a relationship with a high-ranking intelligence official that provided him leverage, right? That's right. He has talked about the fact that he became very close to a man named Ma Jian, who was the head of Chinese counterintelligence inside the Ministry of State Security, which is an immensely powerful position. This is the guy who's not only in charge of finding foreign spies on Chinese soil, but also in charge of ferreting out who among his colleagues and comrades might be a traitor, might be cooperating with a foreign intelligence agency. And at, at first, when this began to become public, Guo said, well, you know, Ma and I were just we had a working relationship. Uh, we we had a shared interest in architecture, he said. But then later, actually, after a couple of years, Guo became more explicit. And, and he said, no, you know, we had – he said I was, as Guo put it, an affiliate of the Ministry of State Security. And, and they had this long-running relationship uh, in which they did business together and uh, according to Chinese reports – Ma Jian would use his political power in order to blunt investigations and push away competitors and scrutiny that allowed Guo's business to thrive. It kind of reminds you of the stories we used to hear about J. Edgar Hoover always having intelligence on somebody else. Is this, is this akin to that kind of thing? Yeah, it's very similar. In fact, a, a former diplomat told me that Ma Jian was known as the guy with a safe full of papers because he had files on everybody in the Chinese government. Partly it was his job and partly because it was a way of getting an edge. I mean, in Chinese, the expression is to which means to grab somebody by the handle which means to, to, to get information that can be used ultimately to prevail over them. So Guo Wenguei begins to meet some U.S. diplomats and another fellow, Orville Schell, who was a journalist who heads the Center on U.S.-China Relations. What sort of impression did he make on these Westerners who he came in contact with? Yeah, Orville had an extraordinary encounter with him. At, at first, it seemed like 
Guo Wengui was just another very wealthy Chinese entrepreneur, and he would host you at the top of his high rise in kind of high style. He seemed to be able to get everybody at his table, as Orville put it, Henry Kissinger and all the high-powered political and business figures from around Asia. And then something really interesting happened, which is that Orville was having trouble getting a visa application because he'd written about human rights abuses in China. And when Guo Wengui heard that, he said, well, I can help you with that. I'm going to fix it for you, but you have to talk to some people. And Orville thought, who are these people? And over the course of the next few months and years, Guo introduced Orville to government officials of sort of indeterminate portfolio. It was never clear who they worked for. As Orville says, I never really could figure out which part of the government they worked for, but they always wanted to talk about U.S.-China relations. And he concluded quite rapidly that they were intelligence officials and that they were trying, as he put it, to flip him. They wanted him to try to give information about the United States and about American politics and and any insider information. And as he said, you know, the truth was I didn't have any classified information, so I wasn't worried about that. And what I was getting in the course of this contact was this unbelievable insight, this window into the thinking of the Chinese government all these these years I'd been trying to get as a journalist. He said here it was. They were sitting down in these tea houses and in a sense – Um, opening themselves up to a level of inspection that I'd never had before. And and that was all because of their contacts with with Guo Wengui. And and Orville watched as Guo would constantly be on the phone, as he put it, with Ma Jian, the chief of counterintelligence at the Ministry of State Security. So this businessman kind of has his ear on the inside of the inside of the Chinese power structure. He has dinner with Henry Kissinger. He traveled to North Korea at one point, a, a remarkably connected man. Yeah, he even went overseas on behalf of the Ministry of State Security to meet with the Dalai Lama. I mean, this is the person, of course, who the Chinese government regards as a as a separatist. There, there are very few and very carefully calculated contacts between the government and the Dalai Lama. And they, in effect, they tasked Guo Wengui to go out and act as what intelligence experts call a cutout, meaning a civilian who operates on behalf of the government, drawing less scrutiny, but can go and convey messages back and forth. And uh, the, the Dalai Lama's office has said that they, they had no idea that he was acting in that capacity. Um, and uh, But he did indeed have these, have these meetings. Guo has said that the government actually offered him rewards for his, um, his service in that capacity, and he, he turned the, the awards down. So Guo Wengui has wealth and leverage and contacts in China. He's um, quite successful in what he's doing. But in 2015, it appears he has to leave. Why? What happened? It was a business dispute that tumbled into public view. These kinds of big high-powered fights are happening all the time among Chinese tycoons and government officials. It's, It's kind of the activity behind the curtain is how it's described in Chinese. And every once in a while, something will burst through. And in this case, he was having a big fight with another major tycoon. And that fight, which began to bubble up in rumors published in overseas Chinese media, eventually burst out into the open. And it was there were reports in the Chinese press about his relationship with this powerful Chinese spymaster, Ma Jian. And Ma Jian was arrested in January of 2015. At that point, Guo had to leave. A, a, a former intelligence official tells me that the Communist Party came very close 
to arresting Guo as well, but the, a senior aide to Ma Jian called him and said, you have to leave now. And so Guo went to the UK and eventually made his way to New York, where he began a new life. So Guo flees China, eventually ends up in New York, where you say people like him will be of interest to you know people in the FBI and U- US intelligence. And and they spoke to him. Uh, do you have a sense of what they learned? Yeah. According to people who are involved in the arrangement, Guo spoke to the FBI uh, repeatedly. He was quite knowledgeable about Chinese leaders' financial lives and personal lives. One example that a former bureau official mentioned is that Guo knew about Xi Jinping's daughter who was studying in the United States under a pseudonym and, and could provide information about about that. As this former bureau official put it, talking to Guo could save you three or four months of analytical work because he knew where everybody's money was hiding. As this person said, he knew who had girlfriends and who had boyfriends. And so he became, in that sense, a valuable person to talk to when it came to the FBI trying to understand what was happening in China. You know, I'm picturing Guo kind of making his way in the United States and he might want to pursue business enterprises. Why would he be talking to American intelligence and the FBI? In some ways, this is the world that he knew. I, I'm really struck, Dave, that he imported some of the tools and the techniques that had served him well in China. In China, he had developed a relationship with people in power. He had figured out ways to build his businesses and his public profile around these these hidden relationships with powerful government figures, particularly in the intelligence community. And so in some ways, it's there's a kind of natural logic that when he came to the United States, one of the first things he did is he figured out, all right, who can help me? Who can help provide protection? Who might be able to uh, go in on a transaction of information and refuge that will serve me down the line? Right. And I don't typically think of the FBI as a place where you're going to get connections that are going to make you money. Maybe I'm wrong. It's not so much about making money as it is about protecting yourself from this increasingly, and he was right about that, complicated set of pressures that were coming to prevail on him. He knew that the Chinese government was going to make efforts to try to get him back to China. And whether or not the U.S. government was going to cooperate with that wasn't clear. And by building out relationships with the FBI, he was beginning to develop a kind of infrastructure of some impunity that would protect him in the event that either prosecutors or a foreign government might try to go after him. You know, one other little detail as Guo Wenguei gets settled in New York, you want to just describe the home he bought on Fifth Avenue in New York? (laughs) Yeah, he did not exactly settle in quietly. He bought the most expensive penthouse in a classic landmark in New York City on the Upper East Side, a building called the Sherry Netherland, which is what's known in real estate circles as a white glove co-op because it's the kind of place where the elevator attendants will wear white gloves. I, you know, There's an ironic callback to the idea of white gloves in China, but he found himself in this new white glove environment and he he, he sort of appeared out of the blue. He didn't know anybody in the building, but he arrived with these very high-powered lawyers at big firms in New York and Washington, and they said, our client wants to spend $67.5 million on this penthouse, and he doesn't need a mortgage. He'll pay for it in cash. And he had these endorsements, kind of extraordinary letters of reference, one from UBS, the Swiss bank, 
which called him a modest gentleman. And also what really caught people's attention was that he had one from Tony Blair, the former prime minister of Great Britain, who said that Miles was honest and forthright and has impeccable taste. And so the building, the co-op board, which you know, New York co-op boards are famously um, difficult to get through, they almost immediately approved his application and he moved into the building and began this new life in New York City. Let me reintroduce you. We're going to take another break here. We are speaking with Evan Osnos. He's a staff writer for The New Yorker. His new article is How a Tycoon Linked to Chinese Intelligence Became a Darling of Trump Republicans. He'll be back to talk more after this short break. I'm Dave Davies, and this is Fresh Air. We're speaking with New Yorker staff writer Evan Osnos. He has a new article about a wealthy businessman who fled China in 2015 and became a backer of Steve Bannon and the movement to overturn the results of the 2020 election. His article is titled, How a Tycoon Linked to Chinese Intelligence Became a Darling of Trump Republicans. He makes his way into the MAGA world. Um, and I, I love this one sentence you have here. The politics of Beijing had prepared Guo well for navigating Trump's Washington, another realm where money bought influence, business mixed with government, and the truth merged with fiction. <laughs> um, he, he meets Bannon through a, another a contact. And um, in 2017, you write, when he kind of connects with them, Bannon needed some new allies too, as, as Gua did. Well, explain why. Bannon at that point had just left the White House and he'd had a, uh, a dispute with Donald Trump. They eventually made up, of course. But he was looking for his next act and he was thinking about starting a media company. And his former backers, the Mercer family, uh, had very publicly said they weren't going to be backing Steve Bannon anymore. So he needed new funding. And and there was this kind of mutual meeting of the minds. I mean, Bannon actually was aware of Guo Wengui all the way back in his Beijing days. He'd heard about this guy, this kind of flamboyant real estate developer. And Bannon had actually said, he seems like the Donald Trump of Beijing. And so when he, when he left the White House, a mutual friend introduced them and they had this long six-hour dinner by Bannon's recollection at the Hay Adams Hotel in Washington in which they began to dream up these ideas for collaboration. And one of them was that they eventually started a media network together called GTV, which would be a kind of alternative platform for video and news and so on. And, and it would fill a space that had been left behind because Twitter and Facebook in the years since 2016 had stopped allowing as much what they described as election disinformation onto their platforms. And so this new network was a way for Bannon and Guo to start getting more of the pro-Trump messages out there that they wanted to. And I should say, according to a contract that was later released, Bannon was paid a million dollars for a year of consulting with Guo's new company. You mentioned that he, that Bannon knew of Guo from his China days, his days in Beijing. What, what, what were those? What was Bannon doing there? Well, Bannon had this uh, interest in China that went back a long way. He'd been a naval officer early in his life and had been in the South China Sea, had later worked, of course, at Goldman Sachs as a banker, and then had, had actually run a gaming company that had offices in Shanghai and Hong Kong. And so he developed a whole theory of China as this existential threat to the United States. And he was determined to try to make opposition to the Chinese Communist Party a central plank 
of his form of conservative politics. And so one of the things that was happening as he was coming out of the White House was that he was looking for the financing and the right kind of language, the right figurehead, the right person who would advance this way of making a more belligerent approach to China a central plank of Republican politics. And that brought these two together. Right. And that certainly influenced Donald Trump's or synced well with Donald Trump's approach to China. Um, you know, I mentioned in the introduction this news conference in New York Harbor, um, Steve Bannon and Guo Wenguei on a boat. Um, tell us about this. <laughs> it's quite quite a remarkable moment. It, it is. It's kind of a surreal scene. It, it, you know, these two figures who are just very different visually. I mean, Guo is a very um, carefully attired, kind of trim cut, wearing Brioni suits. And and Bannon, as, as many Americans would recognize, is a kind of um, more um, informal figure. And the two of them sitting side by side on this little boat in front of the Statue of Liberty had engineered a scene that was designed to communicate this new partnership. These two ideas, the, the, the sort of pro-Trump movement against, as Bannon would put it, elites and against the Chinese government, and then Guo Wenguei's movement against the Chinese Communist Party. And there's this moment when Guo is chanting in Chinese, take down the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, and then Bannon joins him in it. But it's it's you see on their faces, it's this kind of union of calculated interests, these two people who have found themselves together, not quite naturally, but uh, productively. And that really was the beginning. They, they formed what they described as a, a government in exile uh, that was mostly online, but it was a symbol of how they were setting themselves out to try to uh, build out a movement around themselves. So there's this chanting in Mandarin, and then it finishes in English, and then Guap plants a kiss on Bannon's cheek and says, love right. you, right? Um, right. Yeah, and Bannon says uh, thank you, and 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 then he asks if the video is still on. There's a, and then at one point Guo signs a declaration of principles in his own blood, and Bannon skipped that part. But there's a way in which these two figures were beginning to form a new kind of power center that could attract other former. Trump officials and aides and campaign supporters, and that would merge these ideas of uh, of opposing the 2020 election result, of opposing the vaccine. All of these things were finding a home, not on Twitter and Facebook, but actually on Guo Wenguei's network, his media network. And Guo's network started to dub Bannon's podcast into Mandarin and play it on there. And so it, kind of in this way that you never might have imagined or expected, Bannon was was finding this avenue of amplification through this Chinese businessman who had previously acknowledged a long relationship with Chinese intelligence. You know, I just have to ask, when, when Guo signs this declaration of principles in his own blood, did he happen to bring a vial or did he cut himself there. <laughs> no, I, he, he, he did it right there at the scene. I mean, that is uh, – Guo is, a, is very conscious of stage management and of creating these visuals. In some ways, he and Bannon have something in common. I mean, Bannon, even people who 
consider him to be a terrible figure in American politics acknowledge that he has figured out ways of generating and attracting attention and causing effects, having reverberations that people, I think, never would have expected. Let me reintroduce you again. We are speaking with Evan Osnos. He's the staff writer for The New Yorker. His new article is How a Tycoon Linked to Chinese Intelligence Became a Darling of Trump Republicans. We'll continue our conversation after this short break. This is Fresh Air. This is Fresh Air, and we're speaking with New Yorker staff writer Evan Osnos. He has a new article about a wealthy Chinese businessman who fled China in 2015 and became a backer of Trump Republicans. The article is titled, How a Tycoon Linked to Chinese Intelligence Became a Darling of Trump Republicans. So this media platform that Gua built, GTV Media Group, um, a lot of live streaming stuff, and you said there's there was misinformation about COVID vaccines. And, you know, other elements of, of Trump um, information in, in there. Um, he also promoted his own businesses, right? He had like a cyber currency and all kinds of stuff, right? Yeah, a cryptocurrency would be C- the Cryptocurrency, the yeah. Right. Yeah, he, you know, it became this – there was this moment when Gua essentially went back into business in the United States and he began to build out these – multiple businesses. I mean, things as as far afield as a fashion brand that was selling shirts with the word ivermectin on it and things like that for thousands of dollars, actually. And then also selling shares and, and selling cryptocurrency. And uh, it was all complicated financial arrangements with shell companies and things like that. It was this kind of fusion of his business interests and Bannon's political interests that these, these businesses were creating a, a whole a whole network of financial and media um, of media work that was putting out messages and and amplifying ideas from the Trump world while also generating, in some cases, hundreds of millions of dollars. And was the messaging targeted at the Chinese expatriate community, or were were they English language messages as well? It was mostly targeted at the Chinese expatriate community. And then some of these things would filter back and forth. You'd have ideas that began, for instance, in Guo's media network and then would eventually get picked up by people on the English language side. And somebody like Rudy Giuliani might take one of those messages and begin to talk about it. So it became a uh, an alternative engine uh, for pro-Trump propaganda. You know, you mentioned Guo kind of combining his political advocacy with business efforts. You know, Bannon was certainly accused of that too. I mean, you know, he was charged with, um, I hope I can state this right, bilking some of the people who contributed to a nonprofit to support the building of the wall. He was actually, when when he was arrested, he was on uh, Gua's yacht, the Lady May at the time, right? We should. Yeah, they, they were really building out their own projects in unison and often quite literally together. I mean, he was, Bannon was in effect living on Guo's yacht in 2020 for many months at a time. And at one point when federal agents came to arrest Bannon for this alleged involvement in a scheme to defraud people about the building of a wall, they found him on the boat. And and Bannon was later pardoned by President Trump in his final moments in office. Um, 
he's now facing similar charges in state court, which he denies. But there was a way in which these these businesses and these political messages were kind of fused and intermingled and almost indistinguishable. Do you have a sense of the reach and influence of the GTV network, Guas Media Network? I mean, it was some obviously a pet project of his. Did it really get? Did it? Did it have impact? Well, it can be hard to know because the numbers are uh, are proprietary. But there are some indications that in, in there were some videos that that generated millions and millions of views. There were other cases in which they would have tens of thousands of people online at any one time engaging with uh, some of their live streams. And then the ideas would kind of filter through the media network and would sometimes um, cross that barrier into the English-speaking world. And you would begin to see some of their ideas showing up there. But what began as this kind of obscure network appealing just to uh, Chinese-speaking readers and viewers ultimately also had a big English language component. They were translating into Chinese some of the messages that described the people attacking the capital as patriots, and they carried live streams of the violence. This Chinese businessman, Gua Wenguei, was very involved with Steve Bannon and some other allies of Trump in their political agenda. Uh, he, he also had, you know, was attacking the Chinese Communist Party and started getting funding from Chinese expatriates. Did this amount to significant money? Do, do we know? It did. It generated kind of a surprising fortune. It ultimately amounted to more than half a billion dollars that he had pulled in in investments in just a matter of a few months, which is also a sign of his reach and how far these media messages were getting. And eventually, the Securities and Exchange Commission decided that these were uh, illegal fundraising ventures and Guo's companies were charged and settled uh, and agreed to give up more than half a billion dollars uh, in restitution and penalties. They didn't admit or deny any wrongdoing. But as a result, GTV, the media network, shut down. You know, his messages of hatred against the Chinese Communist Party found expression in live stream stuff that he did, even after his network GTV was was closed after the SEC investigation. But he had um, a uh, he had a, a hip hop song called "The Hero." Uh, I thought we would listen to just a little bit of this. Um, the, the words are in Mandarin, so we won't follow them. But you'll just get a little bit of the flavor, and then I'm, I'll ask you about. It. Let's listen to a bit of this. Certainly some aggressive, <laughs> aggressive sounds there. Tell us what, what the words are and what the images show here of, of Guagwinway. Well, it's, it's – I mean it's an obviously an unusual departure for somebody whose background was in real estate development and, and had this involvement with the Chinese Ministry of State Security. But he became this kind of a pop culture figure. I mean he put out videos. This was not the only one in which it was him in that case – that video called The Hero has him, for instance, you know, uh, on top of a white horse and kind of wielding a lightsaber and he's dancing with backup dancers in front of limos and a private jet. And he's saying things like, to die on the battlefield is my honor. And all of it is building towards this sense of this 
mission, as he puts it in the video, to take down the CCP. And I think, Dave, it's it's honestly kind of bewildering. I mean, the, y- you have this figure from China, from Chinese politics and, and business, who's made his way into the United States and is generating this profile that is all mixed up. I, I think it just kind of gives people, um, in some ways, I, I came to believe, Dave, that Guo is this very modern figure, almost a postmodern figure who kind of moves between the Chinese and the American systems, between business and government and intelligence and politics. And it's not at all clear ultimately what the motive is. Well, you know, there's another video where um, he's shouting these these um, slogans about bringing down the Chinese Communist Party. And part of them are him kind of taking boxing poses while he's on the deck of his yacht. And then it shows him in this immaculate white suit in sunglasses smoking a big cigar on the deck of his yacht. And I'm just not quite sure how, how this is all supposed to work together. You know, I think – Partly what's going on is he's borrowed some of the imagery and the iconography of sort of a classic American hip-hop music video. Here I am with all the money in the world and kind of relaxing on my boat. But he's grafted it onto these very political messages, very high-stakes political messages about, about the United States opposing China and the Communist Party and in some cases also grafted onto his role in the anti-vaccine, pro-Trump movement, election denial and so on. And it's a bit of a a mismatch, Um, but it is one that has left these deep impressions in politics and and in the media. All right. To to further complicate things, you have this – you know this phenomenon where he has a lot of, of supporters among the Chinese expatriate community. He tells them we're going to we're going to take down the Chinese Communist Party. I have a government in exile. And then when when some of them are a little skeptical, he ends up really attacking them. Right? Um. Yeah, this is something that began to generate a lot of questions about what he was doing because he essentially launched a public campaign against very prominent American dissidents. These are people who have spent decades, in many cases, criticizing China's human rights abuses, criticizing the government. And one would think, well, here he is presenting himself in the United States as a dissident. Well, he would be in league with them, trying to support what they're doing. But in fact, he was adamantly opposed. In fact, his followers started going to the homes of some of these dissidents and protesting for for weeks and months at a time, creating a big a public scene, accusing them, in fact, of being CCP spies. And he would call them uh, traitors and rats and running dogs and things like that. These are all images come out of old classic Communist Party uh, rhetoric. But it began to make it very clear to some people that this person is not actually um, joining the ranks of dissidents in the United States who have been fighting against the Chinese government for a long time. He seems to be doing something else on right. his own. Actually condemning those who have been fighting the Chinese government. Um, yeah, making them his his uh, declared enemies. And, and then you write there's this strange letter that he releases publicly in, when was it, 2017, in which he kind of tells the Chinese Communist Party he can help. He wants to – he asks them for an assignment to atone for his past mistakes. That's right. Yeah. He talked about this letter at the time. It was really in the midst of this period when he was trying to negotiate some kind of possible return to China. And he put out a letter in which he, in effect, said that he could use his, as he put it, influence and resources on behalf of the party. He said, assign me a clear targeted task so that I can 
atone for my past mistakes and demonstrate my patriotism and support for President Xi. And I think the way people have come to understand this is that there was this period when Guo was was trying to figure out a way if he could come back to China. And this was part of an effort to see if there was a deal to be had. And when that didn't work out, you see in the years since then that he's turned more of his focus and public profile to dealing with issues in the United States, often very divisive issues on which he's taken a very bold stand. Let me reintroduce you again. We are speaking with Evan Osnos. He's the staff writer for The New Yorker. His new article is How a Tycoon Linked to Chinese Intelligence Became a Darling of Trump Republicans. We'll continue our conversation after this short break. This is Fresh Air. So what do we make of this guy? I mean, he flees China, hates the Chinese government, asks for their forgiveness, and, you know, persecutes Chinese dissidents. How do you understand him? I have to tell you, Dave, I, you know, I've written a lot of stories over the years and, and some are more confounding than others. This one I find completely fascinating and bewildering. It reminds me of a, of a term that has floated around the American intelligence community for many years. The, the chief of U.S. counterintelligence in the 50s and 60s was a man named James Angleton who used to describe his work as what he called a wilderness of mirrors – in which you could never really know who was true and who was not, who was declaring themselves a defector and who was in fact still working for the government they left behind and who was seeking, as he put it, to confuse the West. And I, I think that there is a degree to which it becomes very hard to know what Guo Wenghui's ultimate goals are, his project in this country. Um, but it's gotten to the point now where it's visible enough and he has built enough relationships with people in Trump's orbit that we can begin to describe it on paper using many of his own words and uh, and the trail that he has left behind. Well, you know, it, it occurred to me when when you look at him, you look at this swashbuckling business career. He makes a ton of money, but he also gets sued a lot. He gets into trouble with regulators. He files for bankruptcy, has all these nasty fights with his political rivals. Kind of reminds you of Donald Trump, doesn't it? Yeah, and, and not just us. I mean, Steve Bannon at one point said he, he Guo Wenghui really does seem like the Donald Trump of Beijing. And it's kind of interesting that Guo, when he when he came to the United States, one of the first things that he had done was join Mar-a-Lago, Trump's club in Florida. It was almost as if he was perfectly suited to harvest this moment in American political and public life and found people who in the Trump world wanted to benefit from him and wanted to help him succeed. Hmm. So, you, so you think the MAGA movement was fertile ground for for somebody like this? Yeah, Look, I, I, there are people, Dave, who have watched Guo's case, people in the U.S. national security community who say that looking at the pattern of disruption that he has generated in this country since coming here, it appears that he is still operating on behalf, according to this view, of some portion of the Chinese power structure, whether it's opponents of Xi Jinping who have fallen out or people who are trying to generate chaos in America's politics because they think ultimately it would be for China's benefit. That is a view. And at one point a couple of years ago when Guo was in a lawsuit, the company that that uh, 
that he was suing accused him of being, as they put it, a dissident hunter, a propagandist, and an agent in service of the People's Republic of China. Guo denied that accusation, but the judge in that case in a federal court concluded that it wasn't clear ultimately, as the judge put it, it wasn't clear whether Guo is in fact a dissident or a double agent. The judge wrote, others will have to determine who the true Guo is. Evan Osnos, thanks so much for speaking with us again. My pleasure. Thanks, Dave. Evan Osnos is the staff writer for The New Yorker. His new article is How a Tycoon Linked to Chinese Intelligence Became a Darling of Trump Republicans. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Shorrock, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Thea Challoner directed today's show. For Terry Gross, I'm Dave Davies. 